The views and opinions expressed by the guests of the Inspira podcast do not necessarily represent the official policy or position of any agency of the United States government or any organization, public or private. Welcome to the Inspira podcast, hosted by your girl, me, Erica Mueller-Chen. I'm an international development specialist with over a decade of experience leveraging the amazing power of sport to promote peace and positive social impact. My career has allowed me to live in Europe, Southern Africa, and Latin America. In 2022, I accepted an offer for my dream job in sports diplomacy. And I also became an employee family member to a U.S. diplomat, a.k.a. an EFM. This podcast is all about inspiration and career advice. Each episode, I'll interview an inspirational global changemaker working in sport for development, social impact, or the diplomatic service. This series is perfect if you have interest in breaking into one of these sectors or you've already landed that dream role and are keen to learn from thought leaders. Enjoy today's episode and stay inspired. Someone walking, let's say, in a trafficking field didn't necessarily come from, you know, that background, right? Someone who works with refugees now didn't necessarily come from that background. So why should it be that people working in sport, you know, they have to be a sports person. Have to. That's the thing about sport where, you know, it's seen as, oh, you know, you have to be good at sports to work in sport. I, I just don't agree with that. I think that just closes things off for people. You know, I, I think you know we have to sort of encourage people from other fields to come and join this sport development movement. Welcome, friends. Today's guest is John Luc Chua. John Luc is from Sarawak, Malaysia. He is currently a monitoring, evaluation, and learning practitioner, aka MEL, in the counter trafficking field. His academic background is in sports science and sociology. He's hugely interested in the realities of migrant and displaced populations in Southeast Asia and its social and political dimensions. So really excited to speak with you, John Luke. And I do like to start each episode with a little reason of why the guest inspires me today. So I might uh, hopefully flatter you a little bit here, but John Luke, among your many impressive and meaningful academic and professional experiences spanning across Malaysia, the UK, Germany, and Southeast Asia, the one that motivated me to first connect with you is that you founded and co-host a podcast called The Sporting Spirit. And through the sporting spirit, you've examined timely issues in sport that polarize public opinion with a focus on its social and political dimensions. And when I was thinking of starting my own podcast, you were immensely generous and helpful sharing your insights and experiences with me, thus providing ample inspiration for today, as well as some support on my own podcasting journey. So thanks so much for that. And welcome to the show today. It's a pleasure to be here, Erica. Yeah, you're far too kind. I'm wondering if you can help set the stage by educating us a little bit on Malaysia, whether it's historical or cultural context that might be helpful as we move forward in the conversation. I'd only be too happy. Um, yeah, so I come from, as, as you mentioned, I come from Malaysia, but I come from um, a part of Malaysia that's not often known. I come from Malaysian Borneo, which is the east part of eastern part of Malaysia, not on the peninsula. Um, it's sort of a totally different island, separate island. Basically, you know, we are three countries on one gigantic island in Southeast Asia. Um, and yeah, I come from a place, I, want, I wanted to say a little place. It's not so little anymore. It's uh, it's quite a, sort of a growing city now. I think of around 500,000, 600,000. Um, a place called Kuching in the state of Sarawak. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think I think most Sarawakans will tell you that they're, they're most proud um, of the place they're from because of um, probably the nature. Uh, I come from, you know, the rainforest. Um, so if you've ever heard of orangutans, and I'm, I'm from one of the few places on earth that have got orangutans. So very proud to be from, you know, sort of a leafy kind of, I guess, growing city slash big town. I think one of the things which are culturally, as you said, stands out from where I'm from is that we're a very diverse um, population, you know, whether it's from sort of beliefs or um, culture, ethnicity. Um, my family um, is mainly Malaysian Chinese. Um, Malaysia, if our, our audience don't know too much about it. 
Malaysia's made up of you know uh, many generations many generations of migrants, and so you know my heritage is you know sort of Chinese, um, but then you know we've got a lot of you know indigenous people or you know um, where I'm from, um, Malay people as well, also Indian. So you know really really nice sort of I'd say melting pot of cultures, beliefs, ethnicities. Quite a u- unique place to grow up in, I think, and it really sets you up, I think, for for life. I love that. Yeah, your perspective is certainly shaped where that exposure is just normal. So you're like, yeah, let me see the rest of the world. That that sounds great. And that's that's a lot of what you've been able to do. John Luke, if you can uh, rewind a little bit and describe some of your career trajectory, how you got to be in this current chapter of your career, and perhaps if you had a North Star throughout that time. My life has been a bit unconventional. From a professional perspective anyway you know i think um starting out you know um as as, as, a, as a sort of a teenager or whatever i always wanted to sort of work and be in sport you know i always knew i was never going to be good enough you know to play whatever sport it was and growing up you know play football tennis you know um and you know at, at some point i was like yeah you know i really want to be in sport um whether as a coach you know but eventually you know i decided to study sports science um and then from there you know i i, I spent um I think three years in England, where I did my sports science degree. Um, I did a year sort of um, a placement year, they call it in England, which is sort of like, I guess, for, for listeners, you know, it's sort of like a, an internship, you know, so you do a year out um, working in the field. And I work for a football club. I think maybe a lot of people would know the football club, Southampton Football Club, um, who play now in the Premier League. So I worked um, as, you know, as sort of an intern physiologist for about a year. And after that, you know, I sort of went back to university, did my final year. And then I had a lot of time to think, really, you know, about my experience at the football club, where I want to be, where I wanted, what I wanted to do. Because one thing which people often don't know about sports science, I guess, is that it's a hugely broad field, right? It's, it's, it's not just, you know, most people think, you know, people who do sports science end up being you know, coaches, whatever, right? gym instructors, things like that. But it's huge. It's very broad. So I decided to do a bit of traveling. Um, I was lucky and fortunate to be able to do that. Um, but, you know, obviously I had to sort of fund the traveling. Um, and so I decided to sort of take up um, English as a second language, um, mm. sort of a course in teaching English as a second language, ESL for short, right? And um, yeah, I, I did this course for about three or four months. Um, and I, you know, I sort of applied for a bunch of jobs. Oddly enough, I, I, I sort of got a job where I think in the, in the beginning I wasn't too keen on going to which was China, even though, you know, as I said before, my heritage very much is, is sort of Chinese, but, you know, I, I thought to myself, you know, I, I probably want to go somewhere even more sort of, I don't know, far away, exotic, you know, even though I've never been to China, right? <laughs> um, but that really set me on my way. I think the, mm. my experience in China, teaching English for a year there and then sort of then getting into sport for development, which I'll mm. touch on a bit more later on. Um, I, I think that, that those two years in, in China could have been, couldn't have been um, more formative, mm. you know, um, to who I am today, I think, yeah. Let's dive into sport for development. When did that enter the picture for you? And what did that look like practically? Were you seeing sport for development in your life or were you reading about it? You know, I think the funny thing is until until I went to Shanghai, I so I, I never had it never occurred to me that that sport could be used within sort of a sort of a development setting, let's say, right? Or any purpose other than high performance, you know? So the first time I actually encountered it was in Shanghai, my second year in Shanghai, um, when I was in China. Um, and it, it really came by chance as well. I, after teaching for a year, I decided, okay, you know, I wanted to sort of get back into sport, you know. I decided that, you know, I mean, my feet was getting itchy again, you know, I was, I was you know, I had this, this urge to do something to do with sport, anything to do with sport. So I applied for a couple of things, you know, and one thing led to another and this opportunity came up to work for this Tiny, tiny, tiny sport for development outfit. Um, and when I say tiny, it was pretty much made of two people. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was the founder of this of this organization, a Frenchman, um, and his and his at the time um, fiance from Guangzhou in the south. So mm. both of them were living in Shanghai. Um, and this this organization was called Fit Hearts. Um, I think they still do some stuff in Shanghai. I sort of lost lost touch with them. It's been about five or six years, but you know, at the time they were a tiny, tiny sort of organization. And they, they set out basically to deliver physical education into support programs for um, children with migrant backgrounds 
but not sort of migrant backgrounds as we think of it. It's so, and Erica, you know this in in many parts of China, in fact, in many parts of the, of the developing world, right? When the global south, you get these um, economic migrants who move sort of between state to state, you know, in big countries, places like India and China. And so, you know, these sport programs are targeted for those sort of demographic of kids because often what happens with the, um, you know, um, their parents move to a big city, you know, these people will bring their children along with them. Um, they'd often be from sort of lower socioeconomic backgrounds, you know, and their kids obviously wouldn't have that much access to, you know, physical, physical activity or sport facilities. So that was a target group, quite a niche target group, but it really did also open my eyes to this sort of, I, I won't call it an issue, but this sort of phenomenon of, of, you know, this wave of economic migrants moving from, you know, small townships, you know, in the outskirts of Shanghai or further, you know, to, from rural China to the major cities, you know, be it Shanghai, Beijing, Guangzhou, all these places. So, yeah, that's really where I got, I got some exposure to sport for development or sport as a tool, you know, for, yeah, for development. Mm. I understand that a lot of your interest today is now centered on sport migration and development. Was it related to that experience specifically? Because it absolutely. sounds like those three things were, were right there in China for you. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I've, I've sort of worked on several things now. Um, I'm lucky enough to work on several projects now to do with, um, you know, whether it is, you know, migrant populations, refugees, um, displaced populations. And I think that sort of my interests really stem from that point. Um, I can say that at, in the beginning, I, I, I maybe didn't really understand sort of this the whole phenomenon of migration, you know, how moving, you know, sort of impacts people, but most importantly, I think young people, right, who are, are seen as sort of a vulnerable population. Um, and yeah, I think from, from that year in Shanghai, it really sort of opened my eyes up to, you know, sort of the role that sports can play, you know, in social inclusion, you know, in, in, in psychosocial well-being, you know, all these type of types of things, all these intangibles that, you know, maybe you can't really measure. Um, but yeah. And then you go into measurement. <laughs> yeah, no, no, sure. And, then, and I end up in measurement, yeah. And uh, walk me through a little bit about your observations in different locations, because since you have lived or worked or traveled to different countries, specifically the sport for development lens, have you been able yeah. to observe anything unique to different places or any trends that might be similar across different places? What has that looked like? I think, I think first and foremost, and it's, it's a very boring one, right? I think it's, it's sort of more <laughs> from an operational level. I think generally sport for the sport for development programs, um, whether it is in the global north in a place like Germany or in the global south in a say in a place, you know, a place like Malaysia, maybe not a great example, but you know, probably loads of more programs in places like India. Um, the issue that sport for development programs have is one of sustainability. Mm -hmm. Um and I think first and foremost actually funding, just funding to begin with. Often these programs start off, you know, with loads of volunteers. And I think it's not it's not that dissimilar to other development programs, but I think right now sport for development programs um have sort of you know sort of gained more traction but i still feel that often you have to often i feel like sport programs have to be sort of justified in a way that other development programs don't have to be if that makes sense um there are a lot of sort of development programs which you know historically have, have been implemented and people know about them you know know how to measure them and i think in sport for development that's something which is lacking I feel that, you know, obviously things are getting better. I think one important thing to mention also is that people who are, have not tra traditionally been involved in sport, who maybe have more traditionally been from the development sector, have moved into sport. And I think that's can only be a good thing, mm -hmm. you know, to sort of, you know, have that transfer of knowledge in you know, terms of methodologies, whether it is from an MEL perspective or simply from sort of an operational running day-to-day -day, you know, activities perspective, right? Uh, because often, I think as we all know, sport for development programs, um, organizations that are run by people who love sport, but maybe don't have that sort of, you know, wider knowledge of how to run, you know, an NGO or, you know, a business or that sort of thing. Yeah, I've 
seen and felt that myself in terms of pathways or entry points to the sector. It's a lot of sporty people and there's nothing wrong with that. And I identify mm. with that myself, but yeah. I agree with you completely that there's so much value in having folks with different skill sets, different backgrounds, different specialties, different passions, because in the end, sport is simply the tool. It's not necessarily the end result or mm. the goal. It's, it's simply a mechanism. So the more diverse experiences and specialties can only enhance that, right? At least that's my opinion. <laughs> No, no, absolutely. I, I, I can't, I can't agree more. And I think, you know, I think, and I'm, I'm often, you know, and I, on, on my podcast as well, you know, and I, I, we're often very critical of sport for development, um, in that way. And I think it's important to be critical and go to obviously, you know, hold, you know, um, donors accountable, you know, programs accountable. I think, I think an important thing to remember is that I think, um, someone working, let's say, in the trafficking field, didn't necessarily come from, you know that background, right? Someone who works with refugees now didn't necessarily come to that background. So why should it be that people working in sport, you know, they have to be a sports person, have to, you know, have to have performance at a certain level of, you know what I mean? I think that's the thing about sport where, you know, it's seen as, oh, you know, you have to be good at sports to work in sport. I, I just don't agree with that. I think that just closes things off for people. Mm. You know, I, I think, you know, we have to sort of encourage people from other fields to come and you know, join this sport development movement. Quick break here to highlight what I consider to be a fabulous resource that I've created for any listeners out there interested in learning more about the sport for development and peace sector. You've come to the right place. In addition to Inspira podcast episodes that you can listen to, I've created a written resource that you can read, which currently has over 90 items I've curated from my own experience and vetted with other experts in the field. These include databases to find award-winning organizations, links to reports, books, and research, as well as recommended newsletters and recorded webinars, all Sport for Dev related. I encourage you to have a look. You can find this resource by visiting my link tree listed in each episode's show notes, then clicking Erica's Global Resource Hub. That's right, Erica's Global Resource Hub. If you like what you read and what you hear, I'd love it if you could give Inspira a five-star review on your chosen podcast platform and write a kind review. That would be so energizing for me, and it would help Inspira reach more ears. Thanks, and back to the show. When I was learning about the sector in terms of pathways and one was a strong emphasis on monitoring and evaluation or Erica, if you can learn what M and E is, you can write your ticket into this organization. And was that similar for you? Kind of how did you decide or fall into this niche mm -hmm. of monitoring evaluation and learning? And is that something you'd recommend for people? I think it's really funny because I've never worked in M and E in in sport per se, mm. not formally anyway. So all my experiences in in sport for development actually have come on the, the grassroots. Mm. So more in the first case I was talking about, you know. So I, I've always been sort of close to the ground, you know, either as, you know as a coach or director sort of program impl implementer, but never sort of you know behind sort of the scenes and stuff like that. But I would certainly say from an M and E perspective and M M E L, there's all sorts of names these days, right? You know, Merle officers, M M E L officers, whatever you call it. But basically, monitoring and evaluation is certainly um, a very much sought after. Um, people, people, those skills, let's say, I think um, will find a lot of opportunities in the development world in general, mm. whatever it is. I think whether it's sport for development or otherwise. Um, so I certainly say, yeah, if, if, if that's something which interests you, you know, if you've got an interest in, you know, if you've got some knowledge of measurement, you know, if you're into, you don't necessarily have to be, you know, a, a pro at SPSS or, or Stata or whatever, but, you know, I mean, if you've got interest in, you know, sort of the more methodological, you know, aspects of, of, of programs, you know, I think, you know, you should give it a shot. I think um, one thing that people also maybe sometimes don't realize is that MEL or monitoring evaluation goes so much, it's, it's, it's so much more than just measuring, you know, um, the number of activities you've put out, you know, because at the end of the day, before, before you set up your work plan, you know, you've got to have quite a good understanding of, M&E and how you're going to track the activities you're going to implement. So I think an understanding of M&E essentially sets you up then to develop programs, quality programs that actually serve the needs of your beneficiaries or participants. 
Um, and I think we're seeing that you know, definitely in the trafficking field very clearly. I think um, I think that that probably applies as well to sport for sport for development. John Luke, that's such a good point that you made, and I'll try to repeat it in my own words. I think you were saying that once an individual has some knowledge around how to monitor and evaluate a program, these insights will also allow them to understand how to design and develop an impactful program. So MEL skills really serve a person in a variety of ways. I'll also add that I believe the main reason I received advice to familiarize myself with M&E or build that skill set within the wider sport for dev sector is because demonstrating impact through data is so important to an organization and that could be done via participation numbers or surveys around confidence or case studies around positive behavior change, the list goes on. And that information can then be used in funding applications. So M&E not only serves someone positively in their career opportunities and understanding of program design, but it really, really serves an organization in identifying their strengths and weaknesses and then showcasing those strengths to funders. What does M&E or MEL look like practically on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, I think the core aspects of an M&E um, or MEL job is tracking, you know, um, you know the, the impact, you know, the deliverables of, you know, a specific program you're running, right? Um, and how that looks like day to day is essentially, uh, you know, I think you develop loads of different, you know, um, tools to measure these, you know, programs, you know, surveys, you know, questionnaires, things like that. Um, there's of course also a research element. You know, a lot of M&E or MEL officers, you know, um, are the ones that sort of guide research projects. You know, develop methodologies, things like that. Um, but I think beyond that, I think um, you're also involved in, I think, generally just advising everyone else. You know, because everyone comes to you and says, hey, you know, will this program achieve this indicator? You know, what does that mean? And how can I increase my numbers? And, and you can get, you know, sort of loads of different, you know, requests of people and stuff. So I think yeah, it's, it's really, I think it's a really interesting job, you know, even though it doesn't seem the coolest job in the world, you know, when it's to do with numbers. But um, I think there is sometimes a misconception that, that it can be boring. I don't think it's boring at all. I think it's, there's a lot of challenges and all sorts of different, um, I think, yeah, um, aspects that you have to juggle. John Luke, I, I'm sure you and I recognize the value of M&E um, yeah. a, a million percent. Talk to me about the challenges. You you hinted that there are quite a few, uh, mm-hmm. specifically in programming. Yeah, I think, you know, to speak very generally, but, you know, my, my experience so far, as I said, has been mainly in trafficking. But I think, you know, this is all across the board. I think sometimes there is the, the tendency um, to sort of measure for measure's sake, you know, to 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 have all sorts of indicators that don't really measure anything, but they look good on paper. I think one thing, one big sort of pet peeve and, you know, what um, that we have at work at, at the moment, you know, small M&E team is to do with policy and advocacy indicators. You know, you, you get, you get indicators like, you know, um, yeah, number of, number of policies strengthened and things like that. And, and if you think about it as a, as a small project, a program that runs for a year, um, even if you manage to sort of somehow, you know, say that you've, you've strengthened a, a country policy or whatever, you know, a, a policy from, you know, um, yeah, within a ministry or whatever, it's really hard to attribute that change to what you're doing, right? Um, so my point is that sometimes I think um, indicators can be quite um, far-reaching and they sound really good and maybe donors want them, but they're just not realistic. Mm. And and it's hard that it, it essentially sets you up for failure, you know, I think. And, and in, in that way, you do need some understanding of M&E to sort of push back a bit. Um, I think it's sort of a two-way street, right? Donors want to see certain, you know, targets being achieved, indicators being achieved, but at the same time, I think um, CSOs, NGOs, you know, need to understand that, you know, what they can give and what they're good at and, and, and play to those strengths. And I think that's where an understanding of, you know, indicators and all those technicalities come, comes into play. I'm less familiar with the human trafficking field. Can you tell me how you navigated those opportunities and why that work is important to you and should be important to others? When I was in Germany, I got the opportunity to work for this organization, um, an advocacy organization that works um, 
um, within the, the issue of um, sports trafficking, but in particular, football trafficking. And, and for the listeners who are not, um, probably not aware of the issue. So sports trafficking essentially is sort of trafficking by means of through sport. Um, for example, in football, this happens when, you know, you get footballers often from parts of the African continent, you know, from South America, who are promised, you know, contracts, lucrative contracts. And these are often young, mainly boys at the moment. But we are seeing, of course, girls as well increasingly because you know, a young boy of 16, you know, might get, you know, um, promised an opportunity in Europe um, by a, a scout, as we call them, or an agent. Um, and this scout agent, you know, is pretty much just, you know, just a, a, a bogus um, mm. agent, you know, not not really anyone, you know, who's, who has any good intentions. Um, and, you know, long story short, you know, this person, you know, would, you know, this agent would bring this young player into usually Europe because, you know, that's, that's an attractive destination for young sports people, especially footballers, um, especially African footballers. And then, you know, often these footballers are either just abandoned there and then because the agent would have already taken loads of money off the young player um, on, on the pretense of sort of visa, you know, accommodation fees and X, Y, Z. Um, or on, on, I think um, on, on sort of um, in, in a different way, the agent could um, pretty much sort of traffic the young player to sort of you know, a different industry. It could be in the construction work. You know, we've seen also sex trafficking of, of young boys or so all sorts of sort of nefarious activities. Um, it's not, 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 a, not a nice picture, but you know, I think my point is that, yeah, it's, it's sort of, it's a, it's a thing, you know, sports trafficking is a thing. Are there any best practices around safeguarding or preventing or identifying and then preventing any existing trafficking, especially in sport or mega sports events? I think one of the big things now in, in sport is safeguarding, right? I think in everyone's lips, safeguarding, um, especially with you know, some of the yeah, some of the scandals that have occurred in the last five, six, seven years, right? Further even, um, you know, talking about US and gymnastics, um, you know, recently you know, we heard, you know, we've heard the story of Mo Farah, mm-hmm. um, you know, very high profile case. And he, you know, he came out saying that, you know, he was pretty much trafficked mm. into the UK um, at a very young age. So it's get is gaining traction and attention. I think one of the one of the things that um, I think is is reassuring is that there is this global movement now to improve um, policy that you know that that govern safeguarding, particularly of younger athletes. I think that's something which maybe wasn't discussed too much, um, say 20, 30 years ago. Um, so I think that's for me that's a really good that that's a best practice, and I think second. There's a lot more research going into it as well. Um, I think, for example, sports trafficking. I think what you know wasn't the thing that was you know mm. talked about. Really, wasn't the thing that was researched. Um, even though I'm sure you know it has you know a history of you know 50, 60 years. But you know, I think only you know now in recent years, you know, there's a lot of you know academics, you know, really good universities, you know, investigating this, given the given the opportunity as well to investigate, right? So you know, you got to give credit to the funders, you know, universities for having an interest in this. I'd love to talk a little bit more about international aid specifically, and I imagine your experiences have also been unique and colorful working across different locations, whether you were involved with aid or not in, in those moments. Can you describe what international aid is, uh, some of the benefits, and perhaps some of the, the drawbacks? Yeah, I think, I think um, to put it in a nutshell, I think international aid um, essentially is you know often you know a richer country a more developed country giving money giving expertise giving resources to let's say a less developed country but that's a very 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 that's the more simplistic sort of notion of international aid um i think one one important thing maybe for listeners to sort of keep in mind is that you know um international aid is never a one-way process or agreement it's 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 never you know just donor to the beneficiary. It doesn't just benefit one party. It's often, you know, there are many levels of it. It can be very political, um, can be very economic. So, you know, there are very, they're, they're sort of different elements of it, but I think in a nutshell, international aid is, essentially is, you know, a big country giving money to, to, to a smaller country, let's say. And what are some of the fields of thought around aid in terms of whether it works or maybe some of the gaps that are still left or even that it mm. might create? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's the, you know, we can have a whole discussion around this. I think um, my, my thoughts are that um, I think in international aid in and of itself is not a negative thing. I think that there are a lot of positives that, that can be had from it. If the intentions are right, if, you know, if you have, you know, good people and programs and things, and often you do, right? For me, I think one thing to remember is that because at the most fundamental level, international aid is, you know, it, it's often a global North country delivering aid to global South country. There's an obvious and very clear power dynamic that is created. This is covered by, you know, academics and, you know, for the, over the you know, last decade, you know, it's, it's been, it's been sort of a big topic of conversation, you know, but I think at the moment, one of the, I think one of the, one of the key issues is that a lot of the countries who've traditionally received a lot of aid, and I'm going to use sort of a Southeast Asian context, um, just because I'm here and I don't know much otherwise, right? Um, so a country like Cambodia, for example, um, who receives, I think, you know, whose national income is pretty much, made, is pretty much, I think, 20 or 30% made up of international aid, which is a crazy amount if you think about it, right? Mm. The national income coming from 30% of international aid. Um, they are facing issues sort of, you know, they've been facing issues over the last couple of years in terms of sustainability and legacy planning because, you know, obviously donors, you know, eventually want to leave something in place. That's the aim anyway. But at the same time, you know, when a country's system has been so reliant on a, a certain way of working for 30, 20, 30 years, it's very hard to sort of, you know, just slowly, you know, leave or, you know, or, or, you know, sort of put something in place, you know, which is independent of aid. In many ways, you know, that can have detrimental effects. So that's something which I think to consider, um, sustainability of international aid. There are a lot of topics to be had, but I think fundamentally, for me, the biggest concern is that the, the beneficiaries of programs, the participants of programs, you know, are the center of attention. And we don't mm -hmm. get distracted by all the other noise. I think that's, that's the most important, I think, takeaway really. And yeah, just my experience of working briefly in this field. Yeah, what what you were mentioning around power dynamics and power structures is something I jotted down right before you said it. And it, it just caught me on the same wavelength because I have seen and have learned how embedded unequal power structures function in sport for development, in aid, and particularly can take shape with even M&E expectations or requirements, right? Like mm -hmm. um, if a funder has really strict reporting requirements, I'm wondering if you've seen anything kind of flip that on its head. Some things that I've listened to recently on on some like nonprofit podcasts talk about trust-based partnerships. They talk about unrestricted funds and they talk about less burdensome reporting requirements. Do you feel like those types of things or even other things can start to unpack or level out the power structures? Yeah, I think... I think there are a few things you mentioned there, but I think one thing which um, in my organization um, people talk about now is sort of co-design. So, you know, where, where you know, donors work, you know, in, in partnership, in close partnership, not just with the program implementers, but also with the participants um, slash beneficiaries, right? Say, say on our programs and trafficking, you know, working closely with survivors to, you know, to know exactly, you know, what they want out of a program, you know, how it best, you know, fulfills their needs and wants, you know. I think that's really crucial. Um, and it's a very simple thing, but often because these top level decisions, these decisions get made in offices in, in DC, in Brussels, I guess it's hard for people to understand, right? But fundamentally, I think um, that's the whole point. It's the purpose of the work to meet the needs of whoever your, your, your target group is. And, you know, and you mentioned before um, sort of less burdens in reporting. I think that's very important. Coming from an ME perspective, um, I've worked at, you know, really, really small organizations who just simply have had no capacity um, and maybe no knowledge around, you know, what is needed, you know, reporting, you know, what is needed, you know, before you submit, you know, uh, an application for a grant or a piece of funding or things like that. Whereas now I work in a much bigger, you know, sort of organization where M&E is, is very much, it's set, it's set into the system, as you said, it's embedded into the system and, you know, it's sort of like clockwork, right? It's a certain time of month or some time of year that you, the reporting, you know, the, the templates, everything's easy, but, you know, I think, even even from my position now of, of you know having having access to all these templates and, and the resources, you know, and just sort of just writing them up, you know, in half a day or so. It still can be a comp complex process, you know. So I'm thinking, you know, it 
if it's complex for us, you know, um, it must just be like a challenge for for organizations in you know, a grassroots level who are doing so good work, but you know, are being judged for the ability to to fill out five pages of paperwork, you know. Yeah, I would imagine it just creates these barriers to access aid or to access partnerships. And I even remember one of the episodes uh, on the Sporting Spirit with Nora was about how you could think that you need a PhD in order to submit a funding proposal mm. and in order to receive it just because of how many logistical hoops are set up uh, for a person or an organization to access some sort of support. Um, so yeah, tell me uh, more about Sporting Spirit. How has that experience been starting the podcast and uh, what the scope of those conversations have been for anyone who who's maybe uh, looking for a new podcast to listen to? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've been off, we've been, we've been sort of, you know, um, off the recording now for about, I think, coming up to a year, which is a long time, but, you know, just loads of things have changed, you know, for, for myself and for my co-host, Carl, and the rest of the small team. But, you know, I think um, essentially, you know, the podcast, you know, is about, it's, it's vaguely about sports and it's about where sports and politics um, intertwine. Um, it's about things that are not, I guess, or less discussed, you know, in mass media. It's about having, you know, it's about critical eye, casting critical eye on issues, you know, in sport that, you know, many people take for granted. Um, so, yeah, you know, for example, you know, I, I think um, Erica mentioned, you know, sometimes we also speak to to people, you know, on the ground, you know, we spoke to a really lovely woman called Nora, listening to her experiences in the, you know, in the field and uh, her growth over the years and, and her perspectives of working in different countries. So, you know, we do those sort of episodes, but we also do sort of more thematic episodes, you know, around, you know, um, gender inclusion, uh, around, you know, sport and, you know, um, Black Lives Matters, you know, one of our first episodes. So, you know, a whole range of things, but I would say, um, vaguely, you know, within the realm of, of sport politics. I'm wondering if there have been any trends or revelations that you or your co-host Carl have had from those conversations that perhaps you weren't expecting when you set out on this podcast journey. I guess, I guess one of the things, and it's funny, right, talking about it, one of the things which caught us is that a lot of the people who we spoke to didn't necessarily love sports to begin with, you know, and because myself and Carl, we love sport, right, so much, and Carl, Carl, it's like an encyclopedia of sport, you know, and he's insane. But, you know, I think it's funny because we, we sort of, in the first couple of episodes where this final question where we asked, you know, someone, you know, what's your favorite sports team? And often they'd be like, well, I'm not really into sport. And, you know, that sort of caught us by surprise. And I think that feeds into my, my point of, you know, of sport for development, but just sport and sports in general is, is a field where I think, you know, um, is, I think, inherently or can inherently be quite inclusive. You know, just because, you know, you're not into sport doesn't mean that you can't work in sport, right? Because you've got so many other skills, you know, seem a good fit. So I think that's, some, that's something which I think, I don't know if you call it a trend, you know, but I think it's something which definitely took us a bit. Because you've been facilitating so many of those conversations about really the, the power of sport and how it looks in different settings, What's your take on the good and bad high level? Kind of where do you stand as of today? Yeah, I mean, I think inherent, I think, yeah, um, I think naturally I'm always inclined to say, you know, I believe, you know, in, in, in the good that sport can do and, and the benefits it can bring. Um, and I think, you know, that's something which, yeah, I always advocate for, right? But at the same time, I think in this moment in time, um, with everything that's going on around the world, whether it's politically or economically, environmentally, whatever, you know, I think we're at a point where, you know, I think sport could very much sort of drift off into being just this ultra capitalized commodity, like everything else, you know, and fold that trend, you know, and even the good parts, you know, and, you know, we talked about, for example, I don't know, you know um, having, you know, um, for example, having, having more female sportsmen, you know, gaining, you know, sort of, you know, um, attention on the world, more opportunities for women, X, Y, Z, you know, things like this. Um, but then, you know, I think the conversation get, gets lost when we only focus on the elite, you know, and, and we sort of lose focus of, you know, what, what the actual movement means, right? The grassroots. Um, when, we, when we get too caught up in, in, in Nike advertisements, you know, you know, and things like that, and we forget that, you know, um, the real point is to sort of move the 99% of people, you know, probably, and sort of make sports useful for them 
but not just for the elite. I think that's where we're sort of a, I think we're sort of at a point in time where um, it could easily go either way, in my opinion. There are a lot of hard conversations and things that have to be had around those topics. I personally, right now, I think I feel, um, I would have to say slightly pessimistic, but I, I am I am a perpetual optimist, so I always see the good, you know, in, in a situation. And before we transition into some more fun questions, if you will, is there anything from your career experiences that we haven't talked about yet that you wanted to chat about? Um, I think we've pretty much gone through quite a lot. I mean, <laughs> you know, we, we've chatted loads. But yeah, I think just maybe on final word is that, you know, I think I personally, my, my, and this might sound a bit cringy, but, you know, I think personally my sort of ethos is that, you know, you should never kind of rule out anything, um, whether it's in life, you know, or in professional life, right? I think you should always just be open to opportunities because you never know, you know, um, where that will lead you. And that is really, really, I think, something which has benefited me um, up to this point anyway. Mm. Do you think that you could see yourself working in aid or MEL or sport for development in 10 years or based off of your non-conventional path? Do you, yeah. Are you just kind of uh, thinking that you could end up in a in a different sector if that's what calls you at that time? Right, yeah, that, that's a good question. But you know, at the, at, at the moment in my mind, and for a number of years now, actually, I, I've, I've always wanted to pursue um, my PhD. Mm -hmm. So that to me, that, that would be the next step. When, I'm not sure, you know, but that certainly is on my mind. And that, and you know, that, and academically anyway, you know, my focus would certainly be on sport for development and probably where sport sport causes with migration somewhere there. So to answer your question, all three really, right? All three things you mentioned, you know, probably, you know, come together in some sort of complex mixture, um, maybe in, yeah, in a PhD form. Now that we know more about our guest's career journey, the rest of our conversation will allow us to have some fun and get to know our guest on a personal level through some rapid fire questions. We'll then start to wrap up with pointed questions focused on advice and how our listeners can transform interest into action. Enjoy the rest of the conversation. Favorite non-sport hobby? This is a tough one. I I, I have to say music. Mm. Do you play any instruments? I do. So I, I grew up playing the violin, but I, I sort of played guitar as well. Um, but I mean, generally, just generally music, you know, as as a past, I'm listening to music. You know, I, I, I like collecting records as well. I haven't got a big mm. collection, but, you know, I just love like, just love music and being able to go to gigs and things like that as well. You know, like after two years of not being able to, so. Just everything about music, you know. What's your favorite genre of live music? That's a good question because often people ask, you know, what's your genre of music? But live music, I have to say, just good old rock music, I think. Mm -hmm. You know, I think indoor indoor rock concert is, yeah, I think that, that would be it. I think just really, really good vibes. Favorite food? I have to say Malaysian food. Yeah, no bias. How would you characterize Malaysian food? Eclectic, you know, as I said, you know, like before, <laughs> you know, we're sort of melting pot of you know, Chinese, Malay, Indian, indigenous, whatever. So you, you get, you get a bit, you know, slightly spicy, but really, really, um, just really tasty, really tasty food because so many spices, you know, from, from all over. So, yeah. Yeah. You're getting me, making me hungry. <laughs> You mentioned Malaysia can be a good place for outdoorsy people because of all the yeah. green. Are there any other cities or countries that are are high on that list for good for outdoors? You know, it's funny. I think people, people might not think about this too much or not think of this this country, but I think Germany because, you know, in Germany, so I I love just sort of going into the park and just playing like random, you know, like random sports if someone's playing badminton or whatever football. In Germany, you, you get these like amazing ping pong tables you know, outdoors, like wherever you go, like thousands of them, you know? And I find that amazing because I, I didn't even know that, you know, pe people in Germany, you know, 
play ping pong then. You know what I mean? Like maybe yeah. they're naive. That was a bit more, you know, so yeah. Because, you know, when you, if you go to China, you don't even, you don't see that much. You know, people play badminton, but not really ping pong and stuff. So that that aspect. I think in Germany, every every other park you go to, someone's playing frisbee, someone's playing whatever. They're playing something, which is mm. great, I think. Uh, and I, I love that aspect of Germany. Why is Liverpool football your team? Um, because my father supported Man United, which, you know, the direct opposite of Liverpool, um, these rivalries. And I think when I was maybe six or seven, you know, like we're watching TV and I don't know, like, you know, I, I, I've always, I've always had this sort of like, yeah, um, this, this rebellious streak, maybe, you know, I was like, yeah, whatever my, fa- whatever my father's <laughs> supporting, you know, whoever, whoever he's supporting is always, he's going to be the opposite, you know, definitely going to be the opposite. So, yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for playing. Uh, yeah. Fun stuff. It's fun to hear about your uh, music background. Yeah. That's really interesting. Curious. Has that intersected at all in your professional work? I mean, you hear about catalysts for social change and music can enter the conversation. Ha- has it entered the conversation for you at all? No, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not that talented enough, but you know, I would love for it too. You know, I think, as I say, I think, I think sport and mute the many, again, you know, mm-hmm. be, being, being fields which evoke strong emotions, you know, um, and being fields with very sort of low thresholds that, that you know, have, have this sort of inclusiveness aspect, right? I think they can be great tools, you know, um, whether it's in development or just generally, you know, in life, you know, as conversation starters. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, why not? You know, I'm, I'm not saying that I'm going to be like a record producer or something or be in a rock band, but, you know, if, if, if I could, I, I would most definitely, yeah, like, try and, yeah yeah that would be cool i don't know if i've seen many sport and music organizations but i do have (laughs) a friend who um it's us based so they kind of look at standardized testing like sat but they use rap music and vocabulary from those songs uh the the clean versions to learn (laughs) what certain uh words can mean especially like sat words so i think that's that's a cool angle to engage especially young people for sure for sure that's that's really that's really innovative special shout out to austin martin the founder and ceo of rhymes with reason i'm wondering where can folks go to learn more about sport for development um my go-to point is always for resources and things like that um sportdev.org that's mm-hmm. a really really good one what about academic programs uh, whether they're short term or long term which sport for development focused ones have you heard of or heard good things about hopefully i was fortunate enough to go to really two really i think you know um, two, two really sort of specialist um institutions for sport right one loughborough big university not just sport university but you know big university in the uk in the midlands and, and now they're starting to have again um some social science sports degrees but for sport for development so i i was lucky enough to do my master's in a, in a place called um, the german sports university in germany it's called the deutsche sporthochschule in cologne west part of germany that was a really great experience um it's a fairly young course i want to say less than 10 years old for me that's still quite young you know in academia anyway right because yeah courses have been taught for like 50 years but you know sport for development is a young field so yeah, those two. Um, I know in Brighton as well. There's a really, there's a, there's a really good course. I've heard very good things about it. One thing for, for people sort of maybe considering the economic aspect, um, if you study in Germany, you pretty much pay nothing. Mm. Um, per semester, you pay 250 euros, I don't know, which, which is, yeah, $200 or whatever. Um, and that's for like access to, I mean, you get like a bus ticket of that, like a train ticket of that, you know, so it's not really... You know, you get your accommodation, sorry, your transportation paid for and stuff like this and access to the facilities for the university and all these things. So, yeah, you pay probably like what, 1,000 euros a year um, compared to, say, I mean, in Loughborough and in Brighton for, for, for both international and the students from the UK, you pay upwards of eight, 9,000 pounds, I think. Um, probably a lot more for international students. So something to consider, you know, I, I certainly had to consider that. Yeah, it's a great tip. And I don't know if this is true or still true, but I also heard that in Germany, when you're studying, potentially the timelines can be more gracious. So you can have much more time to finish your degree and you just pay a fee to stay enrolled. So it can be really flexible for your life or family experience. So if that's true, man, we're all moving to Germany. That sounds great for (laughs) education. (laughs) 
No, definitely. I mean, some people actually abuse that system and actually just like sort of stay on for ages, right? Which is hilarious because you see a guy, who, you know, like <laughs> five years later, he's still like in his like final year, his master's degree. But yeah, I'm sure your experience was specific to to just you working. Uh, I think you said Southampton Football Club, right? Yeah, As yeah, an internship, yeah. are there any uh, tips you have for folks who want to intern at a football club? I think one good way is to start off um, grassroots level, to start off your local club. You know, I think um, it's good to have big ambitions, you know, to want to work for Premier League club or, you know, want to work for big, you know, NBA team or whatever it is, right? But to start off where you are locally and contribute there and sort of, yeah, find your feet from that level. And, you know, you will, you will be rewarded. And I, I think at every sort of line of work, but especially in sport, um, that's where, you know, you really, really, you know, gain experiences and skills. Any other pieces of advice for folks interested in breaking into sport for development? Um, be, be prepared to work a side job because, you know, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a real hustle. 100%. <laughs> or just start a podcast about it if uh, you Or can. just start a podcast, yeah, and just, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> John Luke, how can our audience support you or your work moving forward? Um, I mean, if, if you're interested in what I talked about today, you know, and I think particularly about the podcast, the Sporting Spirit podcast, you know, feel free to, you know, to, to, to yeah, have a listen. Um, we haven't had a new episode in a while, but you know, we've had quite, we have quite a lot of content on there. And hopefully, you know, it's, it's interesting for you um, because we certainly have fun making it. So, yeah. I'd love to ask you who inspires you, John Luke. It's not one person, but I think it's just more family. You know, I think both my mom, and my dad. But if I, have, I had to pick, you remember my mom, you know, my mother. Um, just yeah, just all around superwoman. Thankful to have. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the Inspira Podcast with Erica Mueller Chen. I really hope you enjoyed the episode and found it useful. Be sure to check out the show notes for links and resources. Specifically, my link tree is there with tons of awesome information. Feel inspired to take action today? I've got three action steps you can take right now because you know your girl likes calls to action and the number three. So here goes. Number one, follow the podcast on your chosen podcast platform. Number two, share your feedback with me through the listener survey listed on that link tree. And number three, tell just one friend about this podcast so they can give it a listen to. And do I have any overachievers out there? I've got a bonus action step, which is to consider supporting me and making sure this passion project prospers. So number four, follow the link to buy me a coffee. That would be pretty amazing. Until next time, stay inspired. Thank <laughs> you.